I'm trying to remember. Is it privacy or privacy? Hi, I'm Lauren Good, And I'm Gideon Litchfield. This is Have a Nice Future, a show about how fast everything is changing. Each week, we talk to someone with big, audacious ideas about the future, and we ask them, is this the future we want? This week, our guest is Meredith Whittaker, the president of the Signal Foundation, which runs the Signal messaging app and also works on the bigger problem of online privacy. We don't want to just simply own our data. That's a very simplistic palliative. I think we want to you know, take back the right to self-determination from a handful of large corporations who we've seen misuse it. Lauren, do you worry about your privacy online or have you basically given up by now? Um, can both be true? <laughs> like, have I given up on online privacy or just have I just given up? <laughs> have you given up? Have you given up on everything? <laughs> Are you just sailing off into the sunset now? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I think about online privacy all the time. Literally, I would say almost every day, both in the acute sense, like, should I download this app so I can write about it for Wired? And should I be using a burner account to do that? And then I I think about it in a broad sense, too. Like, why am I still getting spammed with photos of wedding dresses from 2019? which is literally a whole story that I wrote for Wired uh, about my canceled wedding and how the internet wouldn't let me forget. But I don't think that there's any going back to a pre-digital era. Like, I think that we have to come up with new lifeboats for this digital ocean it feels like we're drowning in sometimes. I like this metaphor, lifeboats. Yeah, I just came up with that. Thank you. It's very good. Uh, What about you? Like, do you worry about this a lot? Yes, in that I really keep my social media tightly locked down and I use burner email addresses for every new thing I sign up for. But then every so often you read a story like the kind we publish a lot on Wired about how some supposedly good piece of tech um, is actually a terrific privacy nightmare, like doorbell security cams or education tech or software for detecting child sexual abuse material where your data can then get scooped up, hacked, leaked or given to law enforcement. Or some innocuous app like a game or a fitness app is actually capturing data about you that is then sold to third-party brokers who can then sell it on to anyone else who wants it. Yes, absolutely this. I I remember writing a lot about health and fitness apps in the early 2010s, only to see most of them get acquired or sunsetted or absorbed into something else by the late 2010s and then realizing at that moment, oh, right, that data is still out there and just lives somewhere else now, right? It's in Google's cloud or it's owned by an apparel company or by private equity. And it feels like there's nothing we can do about that, right? It's just floating around on the internet, these these little digital footprints that you left years ago and maybe didn't think about much at the time. Well, so this is what makes Meredith, our guest, interesting because she's worked deep inside the surveillance economy and she does not think that we are necessarily screwed. You know, I draw a lot of hope from history that even in like the darkest times, you know, people find ways to resist and people find ways to create worlds that are at least more livable than the world they're handed. From what I know about Meredith, she's well qualified to have this conversation. She spent a lot of time at Google, which is a place that relies very heavily on what she calls the surveillance business model, which is basically just the way businesses use and sell our data to make money. 
Exactly. She worked at Google for 13 years. And while she was there in 2018, she helped lead that massive employee walkout over how Google handled several sexual harassment cases. Now she's leading the Signal Foundation, which runs the Signal app. So she is well-versed in the subject of privacy and also has experience in activism. I know Signal is very popular among journalists. Like People often say, DM me for Signal because it's a really secure way to communicate with sources. Do you use Signal, Gideon? I mean, I use it, obviously, to buy my drugs um, and to order hits on my enemies um, <laughs> and to plot the overthrow of a government every so often. Right, right. You haven't done one of those in a little while now. I mean, this job doesn't leave much time. <laughs> anyway, what makes Signal interesting is it was the first app to offer end-to-end -end encryption where the company can't read the contents of your messages. But now lots of apps offer end-to-end -end encryption as well. What makes Signal different is it still doesn't collect almost any metadata, like who you're sending messages to or the timestamps of them. And a lot of knowledge can be reconstructed from that kind of metadata. So it is really a lot more private than the other apps. But Signal, at the end of the day, is still just a messaging app. And the privacy problem we've been talking about extends to everything across the internet, not just messaging. So I'm curious how we get from having this very private messaging to private everything else. Well, that is exactly what I wanted to ask Meredith. And that conversation is after the break. Meredith Whittaker, welcome to Have a Nice Future. Gideon, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. You know, some of the guests that we have on this show are here to tell us about their vision of the future and how wonderful it's going to be. And then our job is to ask them if this is really the future we want. I feel like you're here to tell us about a future that we can all agree we probably don't want, which is one of total surveillance. Yeah, I don't think any of us want that. And I think there are happily many ways to avoid it, but they will take a bit of work. My co-host Lauren sometimes likes to say that we're like frogs boiling in surveillance water, that... In the last 15 or 20 years, we've just gradually come to accept that, that privacy is dead, that every single thing we do online and increasingly offline is, just generates data for big tech companies to feed on. And you started at Google in 2006. You left in 2019. So you've sort of watched that water go from room temperature to boiling point. Was it a slow realization for you or, or something that you, you clocked all at once? Well, I think I was sensitive to privacy because I was in my you know, teens, late teens during 9-11. And then I watched the sort of, you know, I watched the Patriot Act. I kind of listened to the critique on that. I watched the FISA court, you know, basically stand up a regime of unaccountability around mass surveillance. It was on my way to a Tor project development meeting when the Snowden papers dropped. So I've been sensitive to these issues for a long time. Right. Of course, you're referring to the Edward Snowden leaks, which were a decade ago now. Those showed how much government surveillance there was. But now we also have massive corporate surveillance as well, right? I'm not that interested in separating them. You know, I see surveillance as a tool of power over. So governments use it for different modes of social control, different, you know, you have surveillance used to get an edge on international negotiations. You have surveillance used as a sort of information advantage in a contest of power. And that can be deployed in many ways from crushing dissident groups to a corporate negotiation in which you know what your adversary is going to say. So you certainly have an advantage there in getting what you want. So I don't think it's useful in this context to sort of 
cleave corporate from government surveillance. I think those two things are inextricably connected at this point. And that's one of the problems we're facing. Right. Right. A lot of people might say, I know that these big tech companies are sucking up on my data. I know that the government could track my cell phone if it wanted. There's nothing I can do about it. And it unless I'm breaking the law or something, it doesn't do me any harm and maybe even get some good things out of it. So what, what do you say to those people? What are the reasons that they should nonetheless worry? Well, I haven't heard that many actual people say that. I've heard like people in general characterize that way. And I think there's a lot, a lot going on there. One is that I don't think we can sort of project this sort of, you know, neoliberal individualist frame onto human use of technology, right? It's not really a choice. We could live in some sort of ideological purity in a cabin in the woods and, you know, make sure our assistant is the only one who has email and like shuttles that back to us on notes of paper. But ultimately to live in the world, we need to interact with digital technology. We have risk assessment algorithms now that use a lack of social media presence as an indicator of risk. You can't interact with government services without sort of creating some ID on an online portal run by some vendor that has terrible, you know, security practices, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we're compelled in order to participate in everyday life to interact with and use these services and in doing give companies and governments the right to create data about us that they use to mean whatever they want. So I don't see I don't see the sort of sweeping privacy nihilism so much as the fact that we are effectively coerced into interacting with these technologies and have very little agency. Signal tackles that problem from the messaging point of view. DuckDuckGo gives you a search engine that uh, doesn't collect data about you. How feasible is it, do you think, to extend this kind of privacy principle across the digital economy in general? Hypothetically, from a technological perspective, it is very feasible. But it would require radical change of the economics, effectively the political economy that is governing technology. Mm. We could not continue to have a model of tech that rests on monetizing surveillance in order to make the billions of dollars a year that are required to maintain the infrastructures, to maintain the staffing, to maintain the data pipelines, and to maintain the software, which, you know, software is never dead, right? So you would have to be able to do all of that in a way that severed the dependence on monetizing surveillance. And we don't have that model right now, and we don't have incentives for undermining that model from an economic perspective at this moment. Do you see a way to create that model? Do you have an idea of what that model might be like, what a world without that kind of surveillance capitalism model might even look like? I mean, we lived in it for hundreds of thousands of years, right? <laughs> like the oh, iPhone was one tends 20, to forget, right? <laughs> 2008. Um, you know, I, I think I got a Hotmail account in high school, right? Like it wasn't, you know, we. this is very recent. Mm, this is not true. inevitable. What is the core reason that people should be worried about this inability to do anything about the lack of privacy? You know, you really have to look at the power relationships between the handful of large companies that at this point are kind of the paragons of the surveillance business model and the governments that they sort of trade data with. So you have a scenario in which, you know, large corporations run by a handful of people at the top who have, you know, two objective functions, two main goals. And those goals are increased revenue 
you know, forever exponentially and increased growth forever exponentially, like literally the definition of metastasis. And if they don't do that, they're going to be replaced, those people, you know, the executives at the top. And the business model of tech is some form of monetizing surveillance data, right? So you create algorithms with it that can claim to do things like assess whether someone's a good worker, assess whether they get access to benefits, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, You also use it to sell sort of advertising profiles. You know, advertisers get access to people like me based on these profiles, and that's the cash cow still of the surveillance business model. And the real danger here is that the interests of those corporations and, you know, potentially governments they collaborate with, which are not all sort of, you know, aligned with the public good, many of whom are sort of increasingly authoritarian, will sort of have access, have leverage via that data, and will use that in ways that harm the people who ultimately create that data. You co-wrote an article in The Nation a couple of years ago where you talked about uh, the need for a militant progressive vision for tech. And you talked about the need for a broad coalition of groups like tech workers, gig workers, community activists, tenants, sex workers, anyone else who stands to lose out from big tech surveillance. They would need to come together to work against um, this tendency. So how do you see that coalition coming together? Is it happening And what do you think it can realistically do to blunt the power of these big tech companies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I'll just caveat there to say that the term militant is used in a more academic sense to Mm. mean sort of, you know, self-governing and, you know, ready for action, not armed. Right. (laughs) Um, So, you know, that that would mean that this coalition would be ready to fight back against bad laws like the UK's online safety bill, which we're seeing floated, like the Kids Online Privacy Act in the U.S. And many of these anti-privacy pro-surveillance pieces of legislation that we're seeing, I think the vision there was also speaking to the fact that, you know, the, the coalition or the implicit coalition that is sort of backing surveillance is very powerful and actually very widespread, right? You have governments, you have corporations, you have other actors who benefit from access to this surveillance and from this business model. And the people who are often harmed by this, the way in which they're harmed, the mechanism of surveillance, of targeting, of blocking and blacklisting, um, you know, can work similarly on seemingly disparate populations, you know, a coalition of people who may not see themselves as linked by a common harm, but in fact are. And that is sort of a natural starting place for pushing back against a lot of the, you know, the harms of these tools, which apply to all of them, not necessarily equally, but act on them using the same mechanisms and the same logics. Okay, so how can that coalition come together or work together? Well, I think it's already happening in some senses. I would say that what is in effect often resistance to surveillance or resistance to tech doesn't always go under that name. So I would point to, you know, in Virginia, I think it was around 2016, 2017, there was a big wave of teacher strikes, right? And these were, you know, protesting bad conditions in education. They were protesting, you know, a lot of what we hear from teachers who have just been defunded and sort of, you know, left to manage with very few resources, but core to that you know, wave of strikes was a complaint about surveillance technology, was a complaint about a healthcare app 
that they were all being forced to use that was going to track their movements, track their activities. And if they consented to this invasive surveillance of their details of their everyday life, they would get some discount on their health insurance. And so we can see that as an example of, you know, this kind of pushback against invasive surveillance, against the overreach of the, you know, power of these tech companies. Um, But it's, you know, again, not always narrated that way. One of the other arguments that I hear sometimes people raise around the surveillance economy is that they say, well, maybe it's too late. Maybe privacy is already dead. We can't stop this juggernaut. But If surveillance is happening anyway, maybe there are nonetheless more things that we could do to protect people from the harms that surveillance might bring about. And so, for example, just as we banned health insurers from pricing coverage based on pre-existing conditions, we could ban car insurers from pricing coverage based on how you drive, which is now a thing that, you know, cars do. They will surveil your driving. What do you think of that view that you might be able to protect people from the harms of surveillance, even if you can't stop surveillance itself so much? It relies on an understanding of regulatory enforcement that is counterfactual. You know, these agencies are vastly understaffed. I don't know how do you how do you detect harms? What does it look like to prevent them? You know, particularly in an, in a world where you know these tech companies spend you know now more than oil and gas uh, and tobacco combined on lobbying. So. You know, sure, we can have a post hoc approach, but what happens to the people it doesn't catch? What happens to when they do it anyway? What happens to when insurance companies now exercise their right to use, say, social media data in pricing their plans? I I think, you know, particularly in the context of these AI and algorithmic systems that are trained on this data and used to make decisions about people's access to care or, you know, access to education or, or what have you, it's very difficult to, you know, for the people harmed in almost every case, difficult to impossible for them to trace that decision that profoundly impact their life back to a specific proprietary system that was, you know, sold by X vendor that uses an API from a third party company that was, you know, wrapped in this skin that they told the bank manager in the background that they weren't going to get a loan and the source of that decision wasn't even communicated to them, right? We don't instrument these systems for accountability. So what you're talking about is a nice hypothetical, but it's absolutely impractical in the world we actually occupy right now. What kinds of things do you think regulation needs to aim for? Well, I think we should be looking at the cloud monopolies. You know, these, you know, the- Like Amazon, for instance, AWS. Amazon, Google Cloud, Microsoft's Azure, you know, these large- companies that are running cloud infrastructures that at this point are the foundation for most of our, you know, what we used to call IT infrastructure. And we've outsourced that to these large companies, which means that our government infrastructure, our corporate infrastructure, you know, so much of our life is dependent on these resources. So I think there's a real question around cloud monopolies and how you curb the centralized power of these companies by uh, addressing the monopolization of the infrastructure market. So breaking them up? I'm intentionally, if, if you caught that, maybe not using that term, mm-hmm. because I think part of what you're dealing with that you know makes it not that simple is an economy of scale. It's kind of like you know cutting the arms off a starfish, right. right? So you break them up, but you know the way this technology works, you know, quote unquote, best is at scale, right? Because if, even if you didn't have these monopolies, the basic 
approach of the surveillance economy would still apply, the same technology, the same use of data. So whether it's concentrated in the hands of three companies or 10 doesn't seem to really change the, the equation. Yeah. I mean, I, the fundamental like engine of the surveillance business model remains. If you are successful in your mission, if the Signal Foundation is successful in its mission, what do you think the future, the hopeful future looks like in, I don't know, 20 or 30 years? Well, you know, I think to answer that question, I have to stop focusing so much on tech and just talk about you know being a human in the world. I think in 20, 30 years, it would be great to have a world where you know, people were able to have most of the resources they needed to live healthy, happy lives. I think, you know, we will need to tackle climate to be able to get there. And we will need to fundamentally rethink the role of computational technology in our lives. Where is it serving us? And where is it, you know, ramifying and exacerbating historical power asymmetries that in this halcyon future, we don't want to see replicated? What is a way that we can have this computational technology in our lives? In other words, not just throw it out but without it exacerbating these power asymmetries? Well, I think that is a that is a political question, not a technological question, right? It you know, it has to do with governance, who gets to decide what they do, who gets to decide who they do it for and who it's done on. And, you know, are there computational t- technologies that aren't serving us? So it's about much more than simply who owns or controls your data. It's yeah. about what is technology allowed to be used for yeah. and not? And who gets to use it? I think, I mean, even the term your data, I think, mm. needs to be contested, right? What has happened is not so much that this natural off-gassing of a thing called data that we all do was suddenly captured by companies smart enough to capture it. What has happened is we've given the authority to define us mm-hmm. to a handful of companies. And that definition is called data. That profile of Meredith Whitaker that often has more credibility than I would have myself in determining who I am right. is suddenly in the hands of a company who gets to create that however they want. And I think that, you know, that meaning making, that epistemic authority to be a little uh, mm-hmm. academic about it, you know, that is extraordinarily concerning. And I think something we want to, you know, we don't want to just simply own our data. That's a very simplistic palliative. I think we want to take back the right to self-determination from a handful of large corporations who we've seen misuse it. We often like to ask our interviewees at the end, what keeps them up at night? I mean, like maybe <laughs> what everything. helps me sleep, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> is there, but is there anything in particular that keeps you up right now or that you're thinking about? Um, you know, I actually sleep well, thankfully, but I do, you know, it's, right. it's funny. So many of the people we've spoken to say, tell us they sleep well. And we're like, what are we doing wrong? We sleep terribly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not that I don't worry. It's just that I don't I don't think any of this sort of dystopia is inevitable. The, the thing that right this moment is keeping me up at night is the wildly misguided provisions in the UK's online safety bill that would if they were implemented to their full extent, mandate that everyone's devices contain a mass surveillance application that would scan every message they sent before they sent it against an opaque database of prohibited speech. And if their speech was prohibited, uh, they would be flagged. And, you know, who knows what would happen then? But it's a, you know, it is a bill purportedly addressing online abuse 
but the solutions they provide are, you know, some of the thinnest, flimsiest, technically unsound science fiction I've seen. And final question. You, you already said you're pretty optimistic, but how do you stay hopeful when you are looking at these enormously powerful forces that you're arrayed against? Oh, I read a lot of history. So I, you know, I continue to keep my foot in the the scholarly work I've been doing for for many years and you know, you read history and again that it's never inevitable that the powerful forces that have power at a given moment win and prevail. Mm-hmm. You know, I also believe that people are smart. I don't have a view of people that these topics are over their head that they're not going to be able to understand them and what I have seen, you know, even with this sort of micro example of the online safety bill once people started talking about the stakes, one, you know, even if it was sort of explaining complex concepts, you saw people get it. So I do, you know, I have a lot of hope in people. Every cook can govern. <laughs> and, you know, I draw a lot of hope from history that even in like the darkest times, you know, people find ways to resist and people find ways to create worlds that are at least more livable than the world they're handed. Um, well, you've given me more hope that we can have a nice future even though we've been talking about a very bleak subject so meredith thank you for joining me on have a nice future thank you so much get in it's been a pleasure Gideon, I think I now count three guests in, what have we done, five episodes so far of Have a Nice Future, who have told us they sleep well. So I'm proposing that for our next guest, we interview a sleep specialist because I need to understand what I'm doing wrong here. Same. If I had to think all day about how to stop us from turning into a total surveillance society, I mean, any further than we already are, (laughs) I wouldn't be sleeping at all. So do you believe Meredith? Do I believe she sleeps? Well, I mean, let's say that we believe that she sleeps and she sleeps well. Do you believe her when she says that there is hope for saving some element of our privacy, that technically the approach that Signal uses could be applied across more of the Internet? So I feel like I had these assumptions going in, which I stayed in the interview. Privacy is dead. There's nothing we can do to get it back. But maybe we can protect people from some of the harms of not having privacy. And I like that she really challenged me on those assumptions. She said, first of all, not having privacy is really, really new. Mm -hmm. We've forgotten how recently we lost it. So we shouldn't just roll over and assume we can't get it back. And then as to the theory that we could nonetheless protect people from the harms of not having privacy, she said this rather, rather guarded thing. She said... I think it relies on an understanding of regulatory enforcement that is counterfactual, which was a very diplomatic way of her saying, Gideon, you're smoking crack. Government agencies like the FTC or the FCC are never going to protect people from predatory practices by big tech companies that have vastly more resources. Yeah, I have to be honest, when she said that, that it's counterfactual, it made me want to Google the definition of counterfactual again, just so I could it better understand wrong. what she it was saying. <laughs> it just means wrong. So, yeah. So it sounds like you're saying that she convinced you not to be totally fatalistic about privacy, but... But I still don't know if I see the path from here to there. Or in other words, from a world in which 
both the generation and exploitation of data are still increasing at an exponential rate to one where citizens have real control over how their data is used and governments tell tech companies to get in line. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how she used the word metastasize, that that's literally what's happening when you have these growth goals in place. Cancerous Um, industry. Right. And it doesn't sound like you were totally swayed by the example she used of teachers striking against the healthcare app that was sucking up their data, um, that that's the thing that's going to move the needle. I mean, I don't know. You you could say it's still early days for those kinds of protests. Um, a few years ago, the teachers might not even have had enough awareness of how their data might be used to even mount a strike. So I, perhaps I should be more optimistic. What about you? Yeah, I have to say, I think this is one of my favorite episodes of Have a Nice Future so far, because after listening to you and Meredith talk about this, I did feel a little bit more optimistic somehow. I liked what she said about how she assumes that most people are actually smart and aware of what's happening to some extent, you know, with regards to data collection. It's just that the current forces are much bigger than any one individual. But it made me think, okay, at an individual level and then maybe at a collective level, there is some way to push back against what the tech companies want us to believe are an inevitability. Right. Because a thing I didn't ask her directly, but I can imagine what she might have answered, is the evidence suggests that most people don't care about privacy because they are happily giving over their data in exchange for free social media and free email and all these other free services. But I suspect what Meredith would answer is, well, it's not that they don't care about privacy. It's that nobody has given them the choice. I thought what she said about taking a closer look at the cloud monopolies was really interesting. You know, she noted that we used to call them IT infrastructure. And now these cloud companies, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft Azure, Google Cloud, they're basically the underpinnings of Web 2.0 and of many, if not all, of the mobile apps that we use. And they have the ability to hoover up so much data and control it in a sense. But she said we shouldn't necessarily look to break them up. She was careful not to say that. Right. Instead, it's like we should rethink these. But how exactly do we do that? Right. She was saying this common refrain, break up big tech, doesn't really get you anywhere because Big tech broken up into slightly smaller tech still has the same basic business model and the same basic problems. I think she was saying we need to get more comfortable with deciding as a society that certain uses of tech are simply not allowed. And maybe an example of that would be collecting data from a healthcare app, which is then given to insurance companies in order to determine your premiums. We should just decide that that is not allowed. Yeah, like around this idea that we don't really have a model for severing surveillance from the current monetization schemes of the Internet. I was wondering if there are other parts of the world where this is being embraced more that we should be looking to as a model. Like should Europe, which tends to have more stringent privacy laws in place than the United States, be a model for us? Because I tend to look at something like GDPR, which is Europe's sweeping privacy laws around how we need to opt into being tracked on the Internet. I tend to look at something like that and just think, well, now all we do is click accept all cookies all day long, but we're still having basically the same Internet experience. Yeah, you know, I think we should do an episode on GDPR because it is this landmark privacy law. And yet for most people, it's the experience of it is simply more annoying pop ups on their web browsers. And it's not clear how it helps you gain back control of your data. And it doesn't solve the basic problem, which is that the surveillance economy 
regardless of how much data you're sharing, is still predicated on this exchange of data for services. So I don't think there is a good example in the world yet. I think you're right in that we could do an entire other podcast on GDPR, but we're probably getting into the weeds on that. It sounds like generally you were pretty optimistic after talking to Meredith. And then she does have some really good ideas for how we should at least be thinking about a privacy-centric future. You know, I guess I would say that Meredith embarrassed me a little bit into being optimistic. She she basically said, stop being such a fatalist. Stop assuming that all is lost. It is still worth fighting for things, even when it looks glum. And so I think that means remembering, just as Meredith reminded me that the surveillance economy is very new. Um, I think she was also pointing out that it too may not last for a very long time before something else comes along and replaces it. Whether that will be something better or not, I don't know. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Have a Nice Future is hosted by me, Gideon Litchfield. And me, Lauren Good. If you like the show, we'd really appreciate it if you told everyone else. You can leave us a rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you're subscribed to get every episode when they're out each week. You can email us at nicefuture@wired.com. Tell us what you're worried about, what excites you, any question you have about the future, and we'll ask our guests that question. Have a Nice Future is a production of Condé Nast Entertainment. Danielle Hewitt and Lena Richards from Prologue Projects produce the show. See you back here next Wednesday. And until then, have a nice future.